We're in this series called Behind the Scene, and this morning we're going to take a look at the invisible battle that surrounds us. A century ago, his nickname, the Red Baron, struck fear into the heart of every pilot uh, of the Allied Air Forces. As a matter of fact, folks, a hundred years ago today, Manfred von Richthofen was credited with his 66th victory. But a month later, he himself would die in combat. Here's how it happened. On the morning of April 21st, 1918, he was pursuing an office Canadian pilot and was overconfident, perhaps, or, or maybe a lapse of judgment. It should have been an easy target for him, but he made three fatal errors. Here's what went wrong. He crossed the Somme River and stayed behind enemy lines. Secondly, he pursued his young adversary far too long and in his intense pursuit forgot that there were other planes in the sky. And thirdly, he dived too low and became a subject for ground fire. Now, history is divided on what exactly happened, whether it was the anti-aircraft fire from below or whether it was another Canadian pilot by the name of Roy Brown that came in on his tail and took him out. Uh, we, we will never know, but this we do know that Richthofen lost the battle because he made the mistake of pursuing the Allied plane too long, too far, and too low. Now, do not miss the connection. Perhaps it's due to our own overconfidence, our momentary lapse of judgment, but we too often make the same three fatal errors when it comes to temptation. Many of us lose a spiritual battle because we followed the enemy's enticements for too long. We strayed too far into the enemy's territory and we stooped too low in our willingness to compromise. And like the Red Baron, we get caught unaware and succumb to the consequences of our sin. Paul tried to warn us it would be this way, you know. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus in chapter 6, writes this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Paul writes about our struggles. The word here is a word that describes a wrestling match, our close-in, hand-to-hand combat. This is not some just general offense. This is a personal fight. We are wrestling against well, not flesh and blood, but powers beyond. This is not a human battle, folks. That's what Paul's trying to tell us. If it were, Paul would have told us to build up our bodies and use conventional means of warfare. But this is not a human battle. This is a wrestling match against the rule, rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world. Now, those are words we usually associate with maybe kings or potentates or dictators or governments. But remember, this is not a part of this world. So to whom or to what are these words referring? Well, these rulers, authorities, and powers, I believe, are the demonic horde who serve the devil. Uh, may maybe these are even designations of some kind of a hierarchy under Satan's command. Now, I know Matt did a great job last week of preaching about our chief adver adversary, Satan. But the devil is not alone in his quest to destroy all things important to God. Who are these demons, you ask? <laughs> Sometimes people think that um, when somebody who's been really 
mean and wicked in this life dies, they become a demon. No, that's not the case. That doesn't happen. This is not your dear uncle who dies and, and becomes a, a demon later or something. We don't have scores of biblical answers, but what we do know from the scriptures is that the demons are those angels who have fallen in their attempt to follow Satan's coup to overthrow heaven. Now, this is really hard for me to, to, to fathom, okay? Uh, but Satan's pride somehow had convinced him that being a created being, the angels were created just as we have been created, that being a created being, he could somehow overthrow the creator himself. And those who foolishly followed his lead received the same condemnation. The book of Revelation suggests that about one-third of the angels rebelled against God. Now, here, here's something we often forget, folks. Sin did not originate in the Garden of Eden. Sin originated in the mind, heart, and will of the rebellious angel in heaven that we know as Satan himself. He was not created evil, but like us, he was created with a free will, and he chose to follow the dark side. He chose to rebel, like we often choose to rebel. He chose to think he was smarter than God, like we sometimes choose to think we're smarter than God, or we know better than God. And he has forever been cast from the presence of God. But he's not alone. He has the demon forces. Second Peter chapter 2 tells us this. For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. And Jude 1 tells us this uh, in verse 6. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of the authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness awaiting for the great day of judgment. So that would suggest to me that at least some of the angels have already been confined to a, a place while some of the others are free to serve at Satan's bidding. Now, now folks, we know from Colossians chapter 2 that at the cross, Jesus defeated all that. The ultimate victory has been won. We know that. But what happens on a day-to-day -day basis is the battle that each of us have to fight when it comes to temptation. Whether or not each of us as individuals will choose to accept what happened at the cross on our behalf or whether we will choose to think we know better and follow the dark side. And the battleground for these struggles, well, it, it's, it's, the Bible says our, our struggles are against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. This is not a visible fight. That's what makes it tough. It's an insidious battle that takes in the spiritual realm in another dimension, not associated with our five senses. And since Satan is not all-knowing or ever-present, the demonic forces are at his disposal in helping to deliver the temptations that so often derail our spiritual lives. And, and, and what a pain temptation is. You know what I mean? It is just, it's awful. The late, the late English writer Oscar Wilde once said, I can resist anything except temptation. <laughs> I know what he means. How about you? He also said this, the best way to deal with temptation is to yield to it. To describe how temptation works would be hard, but every one of us in this room knows how it works because we have been there. And unfortunately, we have taken Oscar Wilde's advice and just given in and yielded to it. You see, our fight against demonic temptation ought to be as fearful to our spiritual survival as the fear surrounding biological warfare is to our physical survival. What makes anthrax or something like that 
So insidious is that you can't see it, smell it, feel it, hear it, or even be aware of it until it's too late. Satan works with similar stealth. Just when you think you've mastered your weaknesses, he moves in for the attack like a lion stalking weakened prey. So the question, I guess, is, do I believe this? I sure do. I've lived too long. I've faced too many temptations. I have failed too many times. I've yielded too often not to believe that there is some force at work that is trying to destroy my efforts to follow God, to try and destroy your efforts to follow God. Jesus faced off with him. Peter writes about him. Paul writes about him. Jude writes about him. John writes about him. I mean, where do you turn in the scriptures and not be confronted with the whole issue of temptation? So you bet. I believe wholeheartedly in it. But God in his grace has not only bought us salvation, he has given us wisdom on fighting temptations on a daily basis. Now here's the deal, folks. The, the wisdom isn't hard to understand. It's just, it's just like everything else in the Bible. It's hard to put into practice. It's a lot easier said than done. You know what I mean? So here, here's the first thing I want to leave with you this morning. That is God's wisdom for us regarding temptation. Now, before I go any farther into the sermon, I think it's important that we're all on the same page. On the outside chance that there is one here who does not feel this message applies to him or her, let me remind you what we read in Romans 3, 23. All. All. How much does all encompass? All, thank you, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is not a perfect person in this room. We have all engaged temptation on the field of battle and lost. And I know you, some of you may be thinking, oh, if only I could just be perfect, I wouldn't have this problem. No, that's not an answer either. Perfection is not an answer. Jesus Christ was perfect and he was tempted to the depths. So just because you could be perfect and we can't, doesn't mean you wouldn't be tempted. Temptation is something we face. So what's God's wisdom for us? Well, Paul first of all says, be strong in the Lord. Realizing that alone, I'm no match for the temptations that I face should remind me that I need God's help for the endeavor. First of all, I need an inner strength. And the Bible says that the presence of God in us makes us strong. The word strong here is the very same word we find in that passage in Philippians that so many of us say is a favorite of our uh, favorite verse of ours. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The word strength here and the word strong in the passage that we've read is the very same word. Know the strength of your spiritual help. Your inner strength comes from the presence of God in us. And here's the other great promise that John tells us about in his letter in John chapter 4. You dear children, you dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Isn't that terrific? John reminds us that the presence of God in our lives is stronger greater, more powerful than the one who roams this world seeking to destroy. So the first thing is be strong in the Lord. You've got to have an inner strength. But another thing is you've got to be able to take a stand. Remember, that's what Paul says. Take your stand. Be immovable in your convictions. Don't surrender the moral high ground. Follow God's laws and statutes at all costs. Stand for and with the Lord, even if no one else stands with you. Paul reminds us what it means to stand firm in the Lord. 
In verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That is a... I, I wish I could do that all the time. I wish I could take every thought captive and bring it before the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do so that we can be fully obedient to him. To stand firm, not let down our guard, not give in, not surrender. And, and, and then here's the next one, and that is resist the devil. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves into God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's a great verse. But it doesn't tell me how to resist the devil. It says I should. It just doesn't give me any clue as to how to do this. So how in the world do we learn to resist the devil? Well, here's some practical things, all right? First of all, know the Bible. And you say, oh, everybody knows that. Well, I wish I could say that I, I agree. I'm not sure we do. Uh, you know, I, we, I think, are much more biblically illiterate culture than we've ever been in the last 200 years of our country's existence. I, I don't think we take time to study. The, there are so many distractions out there anymore that we don't really know what's in the scriptures like we ought to. Uh, Matt, I know, talked about Jesus being tempted by Satan. Do you remember last week when he was talking about that, how Jesus resisted every temptation? He quoted a passage of scripture. You know what I've learned? It's hard to quote what you don't know. And if you don't know the scripture, you're not going to be able to have this ability to draw out a scripture that might help you. Now, knowing the Bible is no, is no guarantee that you can resist temptation. Uh, but it will help us to stop rationalizing too much. When you're focused on God's word, it's a little, it's a little harder to yield to the temptation. And the second practical thing is the same coin, but the different side. And that is pray. Again, when you're praying, it's no guarantee that you'll be able to resist the temptation. But I'm telling you, it's a lot harder to, to yield to temptation if, if you're thinking of God. You know what I mean? You know what I've discovered over the years is when I'm sinning, I, I, God is oblivious to me. I don't think about God until I have come to my senses and realized my guilt. And then I think, why in the world did I think that? Why in the world did I do that? Why in the world did I say that? Because at the time we, we do what's wrong, God is a million miles away from our minds. But if when the temptation strikes, you could, you could just pause and pray, it'd be a whole lot easier to resist. Because your mind is focused on God. And when you're focused on God, it's just harder to do what he said is wrong. Here's something else. Be accountable in your thoughts and actions. Be careful what you read, what you watch, where you go, who you associate with. If certain literature creates tempting thoughts, stop reading that kind of literature. If you struggle with internet pornography, tell somebody about your issue. Have them hold you accountable. Have someone put filters on your computer so you can't access those sites. If you're fighting, fighting any kind of addiction, don't be around people who are trying to encourage you in that addiction. Get away from those kinds of people. Get away from the places that make it available. If people are encouraging you to compromise your honesty so that you will profit in the business world, say no to that. Some of you may remember when Eastern Airlines was a major player in the airline industry. 
Back many years ago, Douglas Aircraft Corporation and Boeing Aircraft Corporation were, were both competing to supply Eastern Airlines with their first big jet airliners. And uh, the president of Eastern Airlines at the time was Eddie Rickenbacker, and he went to Donald Douglas and he said, both of you have got this, this great plan. He said, your DC-8 looks really good. He said, except for the fact that you don't quite come up to what Boeing has promised with regard to the sound or the quiet issues. I'm going to give you one more chance to improve that. So Donald Douglas went back, talked to his engineers. They came back and said, we can't do that. We wish we could. It is what it is. We, we can't improve it. Rickenbacker smiled and said, I knew you couldn't. He said, I just asked because I wanted to see if you were still an honest man. And they got the bid. You see, there's something about this this temptation to bend the rules, to, 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 to let down my guard, to, to, to yield just a little bit, to be a bit dishonest on the side so that we might profit from it, but it always comes back to honest. Make sure you are accountable to someone. And, and uh, here's the other thing. Don't be a loner. That's why the church is so important during times like this. What officer goes into battle without his troops? What quarterback takes the field without his offensive line? What surgeon picks up a scalpel without an anesthesiologist or a surgical team to assist him or her in the surgery process? What Christian engages the enemy without depending on reinforcements? Are you in a study group here? Are you joined with others getting deeper into God's word? Are you active in a life group? If you're not, you should be. Do you have an accountability partner? Are you taking advantage of one of the support groups that we have here to help you through the tough times? Are you mentoring anyone else? Because I'm telling you, when you're mentoring somebody, they help hold you accountable in that relationship. How about a one life? How's your one life coming along? In a one life relationship, you're trying to build a relationship with them, hopefully, to point Christ to them. But in the process, you're doing your best to give them the proper image of Christ. That very relationship holds you accountable. You are not alone. Now, Satan is got not God's equal opponent. That's the good news. But here's the bad news. Satan is stronger than we are when we're battling him by ourselves. This has got to be a group activity. Do not be a loner. Surround yourself with others who can help you face the battle. And, and then God gives us a promise regarding temptation. I, I love this. Not, God not only gives us wisdom, but God promises us something with regard to temptation. And here's the promise that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way so that you can stand up under it. He will provide this way out. I, okay, this is one of my favorite verses of Scripture. You need to underline this in your Bible. You need to dog ear the page of Scripture here because you need to come back to this passage over and over and over again because it helps us realize what God is providing for us on the tough days of life. Now, this wonderful passage of hope is one to hang on to. Now, the first thing he writes here is he warns against overconfidence. How often have I deluded myself into believing that I've licked a spiritual problem only to let down my guard and fail again? Have you ever done that? 
I think I've got this one licked. And boy, the minute that happens, the minute I become overconfident, I, I, I fail again. So be careful. When we are full of ourselves, we are weakest in our resistance. But here comes the hope. I, I love it that God gives us hope in the tough moments. Temptation is not unique to any one of us. I mean, I can't up, stand up here and say, I've got temptation, but you don't. You're lucky, lucky you. Everybody in this room has temptations. Uh, you realize that, don't you? That we are all in this boat together. What's more, we cannot shake our fist at God and complain that he doesn't understand what it's like to face temptations because Jesus faced temptation. The book of Hebrews says this about Jesus, and, and it calls him our high priest, the one that intercedes. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one, get this, we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So God understands what we're going through. And did you pick up on what the verse says next? And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. You understand what he's saying there? That, that God has put a cap on the temptations that you'll face. God won't let you be tempted past your ability or your capacity to resist. Isn't that good? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I think God has got me mixed up with somebody else. <laughs> I know sometimes it feels like there's no way I can resist these temptations. But the truth is, God knows you better than you know yourself. God knows what you're capable of even when you don't know what you are. You just need to remember, I can resist this. God will not let me be to a point where I cannot resist. But wait, there's more. You notice the next part of the verse? It says, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Not only has God limited Satan's range of temptation, he's also provided a way out if we'll look for it. Now, I've been kind of uh, intrigued by a new form of entertainment that is sweeping our country, and it's these escape rooms. Um, I know they're popping up all over the place. I have not been to one yet, but I've talked to people who've gone to these escape rooms. Sometimes it's kind of a group activity, and I understand it's a pretty good group activity. There's something about going into these escape rooms, though. You know there is a way out. So what do you do? You just keep digging and looking at all the clues and figuring out until you find that way. You begin with the premise, there is a way out of here. And, and what that does is it causes you not to give up. When you think anything is hopeless, you give up. So why do you think God writes this promise to us? That he will give us a way to escape it. Because he, he knows our, our minds. He knows the way we work. If we know there's a way to escape, we'll keep digging and scratching and looking for the clues and seeking a way out. We won't give up. What a, what a terrific promise. So here's the bottom line. God understands what we go through in our temptation because Jesus faced the temptations that we do. And he'll not let us be tempted beyond the threshold of our breaking point. And he will provide an escape to avoid the temptation altogether if we'll look for it. So the conclusion is, when I sin, whose fault is it? It's mine. I cannot blame God. And I cannot say the devil made me do it as much as that sounds good. Because the devil cannot make you do it. He can just make sin seem enticing, fun, and satisfying. And it is. The book of Hebrews speaks of enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. 
Hey, folks, if sin was the equivalent of a root canal, it'd be easy to resist, right? It's the fact that sin, there's pleasure in it for a season. And then the consequences catch up and leave us devastated. An unforgiven sin will cost us eternity. This is dangerous stuff. Peter wrote to the early church. He said, be alert and self-controlled. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Earlier in the service, we sang a song that, that describes Jesus as the lion of Judah. And here, Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion. There's two different pictures here. The lion of Judah is this picture of the king with all power. This one is the attacker, the roaring lion. You see, lions prey on the weak, the wounded, the naive, and the innocent. A hungry lion will feast on whatever prey is easiest to get. Lions stay downwind of their prey, moving in stealthy ways to cut off the weak, vulnerable, or young from the herd. And by the time the lion roars, it's too late. The roar is paralyzing, and the lion is on the prey. No wonder Peter says he seeks us like a roaring lion. Watch your back. So here's the way I'm going to end. Be careful when you leave this morning. The enemy lurks nearby. He's not afraid of hanging around here just because this is a place where the church meets. So don't let down your guard just because you've been to a church service. Just keep resisting and remembering. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.